The following podcast is a production of Commercial Investment Real Estate Magazine, the official publication of CCIM Institute. For more on the latest trends, best practices, and continuing education in all areas of the industry, visit our website at ccim.com and sign up for our education e-newsletter. Support for Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast comes from Remax Commercial. The Remax Commercial Global Network can help you adapt to changing markets, evolve with new technology, and maximize your investments across all property types. Go commercial with confidence. For more information, visit www.remaxcommercial.com. Welcome to another episode of Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast. I'm Nicholas Leiter, Senior Content Editor of the magazine. In this episode, I spoke with David Americaner, Special Counsel with Dwayne Morris Real Estate Practice Group, with a focus on sustainability, land use, project development, and environmental law. He joins the podcast to discuss what commercial real estate is doing in the environmental, social, and governance arena. Americana details how tenant demand for sustainable practices and shortening ROI on green investment are changing the equation for developers and owners. All right, David, first off, welcome to Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast, and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And, you know, while COVID-19 does not seem to be done with us for a bit, um, can you highlight some permanent impacts the pandemic will have uh, in commercial real estate's approach to ESG? Yeah. As we all know, COVID has been a huge disruptor in every sense and in every segment of commercial real estate. I would say that the office market in particular, we've seen Companies looking to downsize and questioning their need for as much permanent office space as they have, or even permanent office space at all in some cases. I think that that we've seen that make the, the office market more competitive than ever. And as landlords compete for tenants, the commitment to ESG from the perspective of the building owner or landlord can be a distinguishing factor. And it is increasingly essential in competing for tenants. And before I talk a little bit more about that, I want to distinguish what we're talking about here. When we talk about ESG, there's the environmental, which is really what we're talking about mostly. That's the E in ESG. Uh, the, the environmental includes the built environment and the, the materials they use, the carbon they emit, the, their water use, their, their waste, their energy usage, and in many cases, third-party certification of various attributes uh, that ESG focuses on, like Energy Star labeling, uh, LEED certification. The other two, S and G, are less what we're talking about today, social Includes things like pro bono work and community involvement, philanthropy, the social justice movement, um, diversity issues, DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. That's all very important, but it's less what we're talking about today with respect to commercial real estate. And then governance is the G, which includes things like ethics and code of conduct, insider trader policies, uh, succession planning for boards, board tenure things like that. But those, again, very important, but less what we're talking about today for ESG. With in the office market in, in particular, there's, you know, growing competition with kind of the disruption of COVID. 
um, you know, how do, if you can speak on this, how do um, owners kind of justify that capital expenditure in the ESG when they're kind of, you know, competing so uh, fiercely for, for prospective tenants? That's a great question. So yes, as we see uh, tenants screening for ESG factors, and we see investors increasingly screen for sustainability for ESG factors, uh, com- commercial landlords are prioritizing sustainability more than ever. It's become more and more important than it ever was before. And you know, you ask about justifying the cost. What is hard to see in some cases, but has become more and more apparent in the last few years, is that the payback period for a lot of investments that are made is relatively short in many cases. That if you're you're doing things to green a building, the payback period can be as little as, in some cases, if you're improving lighting or uh, adding automatic switching for climate, you, you can see payback periods in as little as one, two, three years. And there are some investments that require a much longer payback period, but they can be financed affordably. And we're seeing more and more landlords realize that and decide that because of the importance that investors and tenants are placing on ESG factors, that it, it's worth it. <laughs> Unfortunately, a lot of decisions come down to the bottom line. And, and um, if you can square the numbers, it just and square those numbers more quickly, it, it just seems to, to be uh, that much easier of a decision for, you know, for um, a capital expenditure in ESG. Yeah. And it's it's really becoming vital, even in the capital markets. You're seeing uh, people are finding they have no choice that the demand side of the market are whether that's commercial tenants or in for home builders, home buyers are seeking out sustainability. But uh, on the supply side, the, the access to affordable capital have, depends more than ever before on robust reporting of ESG metrics and a measurable commitment to reducing pollution and water use. Along with um, you know, the challenges related to COVID-19, um, have commercial real estate developers, owners, and investors have they become more willing or more open to improving or investing in green initiatives, you know, considering there's a lot of, you know, a lot of other things kind of going on in the market as we speak? Yeah, it, it's been a challenge. The market has been tight for in many, in many sectors. Um, but, and the perception can be that it does cost a lot of money to implement green initiatives. But, you know, as I said, people are finding that they have no choice and that, the payback periods, once they do dive in the pool, are shorter than they thought. Um, even for existing buildings, uh, the the savings that can be realized on utility bills from some of these retrofits, as I was talking about, are uh, can be measurable, and that that payback period can happen very quickly. Um, and there are a lot of places now we're seeing uh, around the country more and more where. Uh, building carbon reduction mandates are becoming a law, and they are that just that mandates. I'm thinking specifically about New York, New York City, which is in the process of implementing 
It's Local Law 97, which covers buildings that are 25,000 square feet or larger and imposes mandatory greenhouse gas emission reduction requirements that kick in starting in 2024. And that's all in, in service of a goal to reduce emissions in New York City from the building sector uh, to meet the, the city's goals of a 40% reduction of GHG uh, emissions by 2030 and 80% by 2050 against the 2005 baseline. And we're seeing not, not just in New York, that's, this is also happening in, in Boston, which recently updated its uh, building emissions reporting and disclosure ordinance in October of last year, that that requires all buildings over 20,000 square feet to achieve zero carbon emissions by 2050. Seattle has uh, a has an aggressive, uh, ambitious uh, ordinance as well, uh, and an executive order that was issued in during the Conference of the Parties COP26 last year uh, to create legislation that would apply to existing buildings and possibly banning the use of fossil fuels in for for electricity and heating, similar to what's happening in New York. So this is happening all over the place, whether it's um, voluntary or whether it becomes a uh, a mandatory thing. Uh, building owners, landlords are finding that this is something they need to reckon with. And once they do, they're seeing benefits that uh, you know they may not have anticipated when they started. Yeah, it, it seems like um, a bit of an it's an inevitable consequence or, or you know factor in your calculus when you're getting both mandated from the government side and you know your prospective tenants are, are asking for it as well. It seems like you have no other choice at that point. That's right. That's right. And you mentioned kind of the uh, the ability for um, developers and owners to see a, a quicker ROI ROI on these um, you know on these investments. Is it improved technology or, you know, can you speak to, to what is kind of letting people see a return quicker than in previous years? Uh, it is. I mean, there are the, the cost of things like solar panels keeps coming down uh, and those technologies keeps coming down. Um, the supply chain issues of the last uh, year or two, notwithstanding. Um, but it's also. You know, some of these things are relatively simple in, in existing buildings. If you install LED lights, you know, that's a relatively simple fix. Uh, and, and that can reduce your energy bills substantially. If you have, you know, occupancy vacancy controls in individual offices, for instance, and you have lights turn off automatically, or you have <clears throat> climate controls set to be smart about when the heat goes on or when the AC goes on and off, those things can be. Uh, easy to install and, and see very quick uh, returns. Um, you know, but but even for more complex period projects with longer payback periods, um, you know, there can be you, you can take advantage of affordable financing, including uh, pace financing in many places. And there are also can be tax incentives that help to reduce the cost. Um, and for any commercial uh, real estate investment that's a longer hold, um, those things are. Are important uh, to reducing costs in the long term, and also as I, as we've talked about, positioning the building to be attractive, both for tenants uh, as well as investors. It's an easy example, but when I was growing up in the '80s and the '90s, you'd hear about solar panels as this huge investment that took decades to see return. 
But now it seems like it's a much more affordable endeavor thanks to the cost decreases and the affordable financing available. That's right. And and we're seeing, you know, there are places now like New York that has that has green roofs legislation where, you know, existing buildings and new buildings are being uh, shifted over to installing solar or other green features on roofs of buildings to improve energy efficiency, reduce water waste, uh, reduce energy waste. Uh, all, and that's happening. It, it's a it, it's a it's an easy way uh, for cities to improve the efficiency of their buildings and reduce carbon emissions if uh, you have distributed energy generation, uh, as well as reduce strain on the water supply. Yeah, and you mentioned kind of some initiatives in the office sector. Um, is there is there another sector in in commercial real estate that that's been especially successful in its efforts to boost sustainability? I would say that anything new has been the most successful. It's easiest to do this from the ground up, uh, from the beginning. Uh, we're seeing a number of uh, major home builders really put themselves out there as focusing on energy efficiency, uh, carbon reduction, uh, water water efficiency in the products they're offering to uh, the home buying market. Uh, so that that's the you know the multifamily residential sector is uh, anything new. It, it, we're seeing good efforts at sustainability that are uh, well received by uh, by the market. Um, so I would say those are the two most the, the two biggest right now. Um, you know, retrofits are are still more of a challenge, but it's uh, that, that's what we've been talking about with existing buildings. Those can often pay off. But I would say that it's it's most successful and easiest to do this in, in anything that's a new construct uh, from the ground up. And you mentioned kind of whether no matter the sector um, that tenants are, are putting, making sustainability and green practices a priority. Um, and this may be a bit of a subjective question, but, um, you know, have, in your experience, are they willing to kind of to pay a bit more and, you know, are they willing to kind of, uh, you know, put their money where their mouth is as far as, you know, prioritizing uh, sustainability and, and a green building? They are in in many cases because a lot of the commercial tenants have ESG goals of their own that they've uh, either had for a long time or uh, if they're more recent entrants into the ESG space, they've, they've adopted. Uh, many of them have goal, published goals that they need to uh, meet in, in the short term, the medium term, and the long term. Goals related to uh, the energy efficiency of the spaces that they occupy water use in the spaces that they occupy, use of recycled materials, carbon redu- carbon emission reduction. So be, when the space that they are choosing helps to advance their own <clears throat> published ESG goals, tenants are certainly willing to, to pay a bit more for that. Uh, but as you know, on the, count- the countervailing side of that is that it still is a competitive market, very competitive, and particularly for commercial tenants right now. Um, uh, but yes, we see, we are seeing tenants prioritizing that uh, in service of meeting their goals. With uh, commercial investment real estate podcast, our listeners are, you know, across different CRE sectors, um, you know, from across the spectrum. And as far as the deal goes, is is there one piece of the puzzle when it comes to being environmentally responsible that that some CRE professionals may overlook? I would say that it really relates to uh, the the payback periods that it sounds like a big investment 
for a lot of the uh, retrofits and other energy efficiency upgrades that are needed to to make a building more uh, more ESG friendly and more fr- and more environmentally friendly. But particularly in cases where the hold is longer, uh, these inv- these investments are we're seeing, if a payoff period is two, three, five years, or if it's a longer hold, you know, even eight to ten to twelve years, um, that payback period is short enough that an owner will see meaningful returns from making the upfront investment, and that those those investments can be financed affordably, uh, sometimes through property assessed financing, and when done right, they can produce meaningful returns for the investment. Uh, that that is that will meaningfully increase the value of the investment and its attractiveness to to tenants and other stakeholders. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, and and you know, it, like I said, it when everything kind of comes down or can come down to dollars and cents, um, it, it makes it a much easier decision when um, when the numbers square. Yeah, and it's also. You the the goodwill that is generated when you do the right thing is shouldn't be understated, and we've seen an increased focus on uh, sustainability in this sector because that's what people want. That's you know there are there's a whole generation of workers entering and now participating in the workforce who place generally a high value on. The sustainability of their employers and the sustainability of their workspaces, um, and those those workers are also buying homes, many of them in new developments where they're placing a lot of value. Whether that value is tangible or intangible, they're placing value on on those things. And so there is a lot of uh, demand in the market and satisfaction that you that people feel when uh, these investments are made. Yeah, that's a good point. I think as as we're kind of focusing on the on the E of the ESG, that um, you know that that being a responsible corporate citizen is still there's still value in that, and there's still you know there's still good to that besides just kind of uh, besides the dollars and cents. Yep. Um, and ESG efforts have found much more traction in Europe, um, at least pre-pandemic, uh, and while North America is picking up its pace. Um, can you explain the difference between each region's approach to DSG? I mean, that's a that's a big question. Um, I would say that there are a lot of factors um, that can have contributed to that. I would say, even just you know thinking about the geography of the two regions, Europe is much more densely populated than the U.S. is, and many of its you know important wealthy cities are particularly vulnerable to climate change. There are, you think about Amsterdam and Copenhagen, parts of Belgium that are at or below sea level and very vulnerable to, uh, to climate change. And also on the geography side of things, the, you have very favorable conditions in Europe in terms of, the, the seafloor and the wind conditions on on the ocean or the the seas that border Europe's western and northern areas that make it make those areas very favorable for offshore wind development. So that's you know 
in addition to the uh, the wherewithal and the desire to invest in offshore wind, the conditions there have are very favorable to it. Um, I would also say that there's a, you know a cultural difference between the two regions. Uh, you know, Europe has many parts of Europe have traditionally placed a greater emphasis on collective action, uh, whereas the U.S.'s culture has always been more individualistic, and we can do things on our own. Um, and I think that that has led to a greater willingness in Europe or a greater desire to invest in solving a problem that does require collective action. Climate change is, is, is inherently a problem requiring collective action from, from all over the globe. Um, you have a political history in Europe of, of embracing and not letting go of the international scientific consensus and the need for action dating back decades through Kyoto and, and Paris and the various IPCC reports that have come out. Um, whereas the U.S., it's, you know, been on and off uh, based on our, our political history. Um, so be, all of that has led to a regulatory infrastructure in Europe that is uh, very favorable to investments in sustainability. Um, there's been an emissions trading system in Europe for, for years. Uh, they, have a, they have an EU climate law that's now in effect. Um, and I really think that Europe's successes in this area have really shown that technology can be brought to bear on this problem and that solutions can be profitable as technology improves. Um, the U.S. obviously is a, a hub for innovation. Um, for, for many of these technologies and other uh, ways of solving the problem. But Europe has really served as a, as a test lab and a good one for, for what's gone on there. Yeah, and, and I think um, with kind of the growing um, adoption of green practices here, um, it certainly shows there is an appetite, like you said, from tenants, from either, either through mandates and through developers themselves that um, – that there is an appetite to kind of to, to boost the overall performance, you know, in the U.S. and, and Canada. Yeah. And, you know, as the, the world is obviously globalized and so many of these companies are international that have goals that, you know, sustainability goals, ESG goals that don't just apply to their European presence, but they apply to the American presence and vice versa. And to achieve goals company-wide requires action uh, in all of the places where that company operates, whether it's in Europe or North America or elsewhere. And uh, these companies need to align their goals uh, with their actions in all, all regions of the world where they operate. Looking forward, um, you know, do you see obstacles that will continue to be in the way um, of commercial real estate adopting green practices and, and sustainable practices? Yeah, I mean, obviously, we, we hope to see as much progress as, po as possible. Uh, and I think that's the trend. You know, I think the trend is undeniably in the direction of greater sustainability, more investment in green practices, in retrofits, in, in energy-saving technologies, in energy gener distributed energy generation. Um, in terms of obstacles, you know, cost is number one. When you're asking a uh, 
commercial property developer or owner to make an investment in a what can be an expensive proposition uh, that that's that's always an obstacle and the you know further proof of how quickly the payback periods can be for some of these investments will be crucial in convincing uh, commercial real estate developers and investors to to make those investments. Um, you also see some some political political or cultural resistance, particularly in in the U.S. Uh, but that's that resistance is harder to sustain as costs come down. And we we've seen that you know resistance to in some areas of the country to development of renewable energy resources, but as the costs of of solar and and wind development keep coming down, uh, it's harder to the, the market decides. It's harder to sustain that that resistance. Uh, the benefits become more and more apparent. Um, I would say another risk would be that government incentive incentives, tax incentives, and, and the like sometimes expire, need to be extended. We're seeing that right now uh, with the delay or, or non-adoption of the Build Back Better bill in, in Washington. Uh, there, the, uh, there are tax incentives for things like electric vehicles that in the, in the drafts of that bill that, that uh, need to be adopted uh, in order to incentivize purchasing electric vehicles. That's true in the commercial real estate sector as well. Um, and then lastly, I would say the supply chain. I mean, we've seen a tremendous amount of disruption over the last year, two years from COVID on the global supply chain. And as supply chain issues continue to get worked out, that will aid in the implementation of a lot of green technologies. But there are some, you know, that are facing disruptions because it simply is harder and more expensive to make and import the components needed to to implement some of these technologies. Yeah. And for a final question, there appears to be some momentum building in adopting uh, these kinds of practices. Where do you see sustainability and green building practices in three to five years if things continue to break right? I see them as an integral part of the industry. And I see them as increasingly visible to investors and tenants and other stakeholders. I mean, we see that now where companies are setting goals and then advertising their, their success in meeting those goals. I, because so, meant, so much has been done to set goals over the last three to five years, and then a lot of those goals will come due uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the near term. And I think that we'll see uh, companies continue to do that. Uh, and, and make sure the world knows that they are making their their assets more green. Uh, I also think we'll see more mandates, uh, more incentives to make real estate greener and less carbon intensive, whether that comes from cities or in some cases state or or even federal government the there will be many reasons for commercial real estate owners and tenants to make these investments 
whether they have to or not. It sounds like these concepts are moving from the periphery to priorities that are really essential. Um, These concepts are now necessary considerations, no matter what aspect of commercial real estate you're in. That's right. It's going to be increasingly important to to profit from this industry that you will take sustainability into account as uh, as this as this continues. Well, great, David. I think that's that's a perfect place to wrap up. Um, and and I just wanted to appreciate it and, and say thank you for for joining Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast. Thanks for having me, Nick. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast. Head to SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Join us next month for a brand new episode of Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast, featuring another leading figure from the world of commercial real estate.